You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Hello, my name is Diet, and today I am talking with Dr. Charles Goldman, a palliative care physician at Mercy One Des Moines Medical Center. Palliative care may be one of the most misunderstood terms in healthcare. Many people believe it's the same as hospice care or that it means the end of life, but palliative care is different from hospice and it can be very helpful not only to patients, but their caregivers as well. Dr. Goldman is here to help us understand palliative care, including the types of services offered and when someone might need palliative care. Welcome, Dr. Goldman. Thank you for being here. Uh, It's my pleasure, Diet. First, to get started, can you explain what palliative care is? Sure. Palliative care is a form of specialized medical care for people who have serious illnesses. Now, most people associate palliative care with uh, cancer patients, but we also care for patients with other longstanding serious illnesses like heart failure, end-stage renal disease, a variety of things like cystic fibrosis, where there's a, a respiratory failures. And basically, it is a form of care which is not directed toward your disease. You know, because when you think about our patients seeing specialists about their disease, it's always about the disease. If you have a cancer, you see a medical oncologist or someone like myself, like a surgical oncologist. And we spend a lot of our time talking about the disease itself as though it's an entity separate from you. And what palliative care is trying to do is to reintegrate the specific person, the specific patient with the consequences of their disease that don't necessarily have to be what is the change on your scan. There are things like pain, psychological uh, aspects of disease, the stress of disease to yourself and your family and caregivers, so that it's trying to bring back into the conversation, what are the patient's goals and how can we most help you with your goals? Whereas a lot of what we do in modern medicine is how can we make your scan look better by shrinking your tumor or making your pulmonary function test look better? So we don't have any tools that are specific beyond conversation. And to some degree, uh, sophisticated uses of various pharmacologic agents to help with, again, things like pain, anxiety, and other other sorts of distress that goes along with uh, chronic and serious illnesses. What types of skills or experience are most important for a provider for palliative care? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the palliative care field sort of existed for maybe two decades now. But for the first decade of that time, it was just a a small number of advocates who were in various fields, most of them in medical subspecialties or in primary uh, care medicine, a small number in surgery, uh, and interestingly, some people in the emergency department who felt that conversation skills had really atrophied among physicians as a whole and and the drive to get through the checklist that you had to get through uh, with the uh, electronic health record had really um, left the patient without the ability to truly understand their disease in a greater context. And so uh, over the last decade, 
it actually has become a subspecialty, a boarded subspecialty, which requires at least a year of fellowship training. And if you do pediatric palliative care, uh, two years of fellowship training, that's training after residency. Oh, wow. um, and for instance, I'm board certified in surgery and palliative care, both by the American Board of Surgery. I actually went to the University of Iowa uh, three years ago to do a fellowship that lasted a year. Um, it's pretty unusual when you know the oldest person on the service uh, is the fellow. Um, but uh, it, it, what you're looking for is somebody who now has the specialized training uh, that fellowship provides or someone who's been doing palliative care for a long time, uh, who probably has been grandfathered into certification. The, you know, there is an element of what we call primary palliative care. That's where, what can your regular doctor, your PCP, maybe your surgeon, you know, the people who, who are the first line that you would contact with, with an illness, what kind of palliative care can they provide? Generally, most of them are not as sophisticated in their use, for instance, of pain medication, but they certainly, um, and we're trying to diffuse these skills out to uh, practitioners in general, um, they certainly should be able to at least initiate some discussions about things such as advanced care planning, resuscitation status, for the most part. Those are very, very rudimentary elements of palliative care but um, it doesn't require getting a palliative care person to come in and necessarily talk about code status, although we do a lot of that. Can you help us to understand how palliative care is different from hospice? Yeah, that, that's, that is the question I get probably 80% of the time when I walk in the room. Hospice is a, is a so small subset of what palliative care is. We overlap skill-wise and um, focus-wise with hospice, but hospice is solely um, a service that's provided to people whom we believe in our best medical judgment will not be alive six months from the day they're referred. Uh, in fact, in the United States, most people aren't referred to hospice until they're usually within a couple of weeks of death. Um, palliative care is about that you may have a serious illness, but you, you're going to have a reasonably long period of time where you will not only be alive, but that you would like to have quality of life. And our goal as a, in palliative care, unlike hospice, is to better the situation for the patient while they're still living with their serious illness, as opposed to being focused solely on that period proximate to death that hospice is, um, is covering. And, and there are some patients for whom they go on hospice, and I do remain their primary provider, um, but for the most part, when you are uh, placed with hospice, the medical director of hospice, oftentimes who are palliative care physicians themselves, becomes the main person in terms of uh, providing your, your care. Um, which patients should be offered or should consider asking for a palliative care consultation? Well, I think that, that that's, that's also an important question. It used to be that um, the model of care, for instance, particularly, and the cancer patients are the easiest to kind of describe. The model with uh, cancer patients was that your main physician was either your surgical oncologist or your medical oncologist, sometimes your radiation therapist, um, but for the most part, your medical oncologist. And so you would have this period of time where it was all about treatment of your tumor. And 
On the side, you might have discussions about perhaps issues of advanced care planning, um, perhaps some symptom management being done by your medical oncologist. And then when it became clear that your disease had progressed to the point that there was no further therapies to be offered, you would then transition to hospice. And the new model is that palliative care should be incorporated where you can predict the outcome will shorten the patient's life um, early in the process, you know, not necessarily at the time of diagnosis, but certainly within a, perhaps a number of months of the time of diagnosis, depending on what the oncologist, for instance, projects would be the patient's survival. And that would be true for any of the diseases we've talked about that are chronic, COPD, uh, which is you know, longstanding respiratory failure. People know it as emphysema heart failure patients. We also get involved a lot with the unique patients that come to Mercy because we have a left ventricular assist device program here. So mm -hmm. these are patients who may be going to transplant or who may simply be getting what's called a destination LVAD where the device is put in to extend their life, but eventually we know that the device will not be able to keep them alive with a good quality of life after a certain amount of time. Um, again, the, the majority of patients we see are, are related to cancer diagnoses. And of course, we also see a fair number of geriatric patients, uh, mostly dementia patients. Dementia is a terminal illness. People with dementia do not live out their normal lifespan. And um, there are a lot of landmarks along the way as dementia progresses where symptom management and clarification of what are the goals of treatment of other medical issues that the dementia patients has um, have to be clarified. And they change as things move along. So is there, can you give uh, maybe specific points that is in someone's illness that they uh, should consider palliative care? I think in, in the cancer patient group, uh, any, any, any cancer patient who has stage three or four disease when they're diagnosed, that would be locally advanced, usually with nodal involvement, stage four, meaning the cancer had gone out of the region where it started and it may have gone to other organs. Um, those patients should be referred for palliative care within, I would say, yeah, the first six months of their diagnosis, even if they're being actively treated. Um, unfortunately, the problem we run into here is that patients are, are oftentimes reticent about asking prognosis because, at least in the view of physicians, they're afraid that if they actually tell them that even with treatment, they may only live, let's say, 12 or 18 months, and just for example, um, that they're taking away the patient's hope. And so as soon as they, they bring up the question of palliative care, it's implying maybe that things aren't going to go exactly as the patient thought they would. The flip side of that is, is that it's unfair to a patient who you know has a somewhat limited time before their health is going to deteriorate and they may succumb to their cancer. Um, to have them go along without doing any of the emotional and pragmatic things that you need to do to prepare for the likelihood that your, your life is no longer open-ended. And also the psychological consequences of realizing that your mortality is no longer off in the distance. So with cancer patients, uh, particularly with things like lung cancer, 
um, where we know the prognosis is poor, gastric, esophagus, pancreatic, sometimes advanced tumors of other types, uh, aggressive, melan aggressive lymphomas. We feel like palliative care should be uh, sought after, as I say, within three to six months of diagnosis. Um, among the, the degenerative diseases like COPD and heart failure, when the patients start having repetitive hospitalizations because of either shortness of breath or um, fluid overload where their quality of life is starting to um, deteriorate from the level it was when they were first diagnosed, that may be many years into their disease. Certain patients we have to see before they can get procedures done, for instance, LVAD patients. Um, those patients need to be seen by palliative care as a um, prerequisite for even getting an LVAD. Um, so it depends on the disease that we're talking about and where the patient is on their, what we call their trajectory with their disease. Can you talk to me a little bit about what services an interdisciplinary palliative care team might offer? I'm glad you used the, the term interdisciplinary uh, because um, a lot of times when you, let's say you'll go to a, a big cancer center uh, like MD Anderson or, you know, Siteman at WashU or up to Mayo, um, and even here, you know, we're, 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 we're getting together a much more coordinated and comprehensive cancer center. We, we tend to use the word multidisciplinary. Um, in, in palliative care, we use the term interdisciplinary because we want to take away the hierarchy, which usually puts the physician uh, as running the team, because the team I am a member of includes nurse practitioners who are able to, as I can do, you know, prescribe. My two nurse practitioners, one of them has a subspecialty in geriatrics, the other in oncology and cancer. Um, I have three nurses, one of whom is, you know, subspecialty uh, credentialed in uh, cardiac, another who also has uh, geriatric experience, and, and the third has experience, very long-standing experience with oncology patients. Um, I have a, a chaplain who uh, handles a number of things, including not just the spiritual aspects of disease, but uh, also uh, along with our social worker, they do things like life review, something called dignity therapy, uh, the sorts of things that people want to do to leave behind something for their families uh, when it becomes clear that they're, they're no longer going to get better with further treatment. Uh, my social worker also uh, helps with the same things the social workers help in, with in the hospital and in the outpatient arena, uh, coordination of home care, uh, other services. Um, our social worker oftentimes uh, will do some what's called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a goal-directed kind of therapy where we don't really concern ourselves with why you're feeling what you're feeling, but what can you do both with and without medication to control your emotions, to uh, get to a better place, to live in the here and now for, in particular. And in some places, we unfortunately don't have someone uh, to do this right now, but I have been places with both hospice and also at the University of Iowa, palliative care services oftentimes have music therapists. Um, again, another way of looking for a non-pharmacologic way to reach people, to relax people, to help people um, you know, get the, the uh, respite from their disease that will make whatever time they have left more valuable. And oftentimes all of these things 
have more value in terms of extending your life than many of the last ditch kind of chemo efforts do. Um, and I think you touched on this just a little bit, but if you could also talk to us about if there's any palliative care services directed towards the family or the caregivers as opposed to the patient. Um, well, yes. I mean, we spend a lot of time conversing uh, with the caregivers. Our social worker does at times avail, help them avail themselves of services, uh, support groups, other things that would be helpful, bereavement groups um, that would be helpful to them because a lot of the caregivers and family go through a process known as anticipatory mourning. Patient's still alive, their family member is still alive, but the, they're going in different directions. You know, the patient actually oftentimes reaches a period of great calm, understanding that their time is, is, is close whereas the family is in a very different place, you know, and they're still wanting to, 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 to retrieve the patient from that and bring them back and pull them back into the family unit. And when that becomes more and more difficult, uh, the family members oftentimes start grieving before the patient has already died. So that's something we look out for. That's something that we, again, use a social worker to try to help the families uh, negotiate their way through that period of time. Um, we spend a lot of time, particularly in this time frame where you can't see your family member in the hospital anymore because of the COVID. We spend a lot of time getting uh, family conferences together, uh, most of them virtual. Um, and oftentimes what is, is most distressing to the family is that they aren't really clear on all that has transpired. You know, everything gets filtered to them through the patient and, you know, just like doctors do, the patient filters the information to be least harmful to their family, to be least upsetting to their family. And so oftentimes we find ourselves in the position with both the patient and the family of where everybody else has avoided, avoided talking about prognosis or what will it look like if we were to try to get you through this pneumonia so that you would go back to having this cancer, which can't be you know, reversed what will that look like? You know, because if, if you ask a question, uh, you know, do you want us to save your life? No one's going to answer no to that. But if you say, do you want us to try to bring you through this pneumonia, but you will go back to, this is the way your life is going to look. You will still perhaps, unfortunately, be in pain from your cancer, or you'll still be short of breath to the point that you can't leave the house with your COPD. It, it's about, you know, giving context. And a lot of what we do for the family that's the, the most calming is to make clear to everybody, this is what's going on. You know, all the things that look, got left unsaid for oftentimes months or years finally get said and people say, oh, now I understand. Mm -hmm. And that in and of itself is very helpful to the families. The biggest, at the end of life, the biggest disparity is what the patients invariably will say and what the family says. The patients always say, particularly the men, um, say, I don't want to be a burden on my family. And the family, on the other hand, wants to be able to show love for their family member and to care for them. And so the things that the patient perceives as a burden, the families oftentimes see as an opportunity mm -hmm. to show them what they had meant. 
uh, yesterday I had a, a hospice patient of mine who's you know, a physician. Um, and like a lot of physicians, they want to be in control. And um, this, this patient had become incontinent, you know, which was a real blow to, to his dignity. And, and he didn't want to be part of that. You know, yeah. and, and he saw that as burdensome to his family. And we kind of talked about it with the, the extended family uh, on this call. And, and everyone was of the same mind. No, this is, this is what you do for a family member. No, we're not going to call a nurse or pay a nurse to come in and do this. We want to show you how much we love you in a way that they understood, but he did not. My last question that I have for you is how can someone find palliative care services in their hometown? Are they available widely or is there special areas they should look? I, I think in terms of the easiest way probably would be contact your primary doctor or if your primary doctor is an oncologist or a radiation oncologist, you can contact them and just simply ask them to call whichever palliative care group uh, they work with. You know, for our purposes, we just have the patients call in or the doctors can either fax us a uh, referral or they can call us. But uh, the, uh, some of the original uh, people who kind of got palliative care off the ground are here in Iowa. So in, in some ways, uh, Iowa is, is fairly well resourced for this uh, versus uh, some of the other Midwestern states, especially the rural Midwestern states. Okay, and just one more follow-up question. Um, what types of symptoms do you typically help manage? Well, the most common one that we help manage is pain. And um, we're very fortunate here at Mercy because we have uh, pain ourselves. We have a pain clinic, which is manned, or I should say uh, the personnel in the clinic are uh, all anesthesiologists who do interventional procedures where they will go in and block certain nerves, for instance, or something akin to that for pain. And we also have a nurse uh, pain specialist. So uh, we all share responsibility for uh, pain management. And in our case, we don't generally take on things like chronic back pain or any of the usual musculoskeletal pain. We generally deal with pain related to uh, other serious illnesses. Fatigue is a very common complaint, particularly uh, among any, particularly uh, with patients with chronic diseases that are in later stages, but certainly the cancer patients in particular um, have a lot of issues with fatigue. Appetite is oftentimes another one uh, that we can help out with. Uh, shortness of breath, depending on if you're dealing with cystic fibrosis, COPD, uh, lung cancers. Uh, and then uh, the, what we call the kind of existential suffering kinds of things where um, hopelessness, anxiety, agitation, depression. I mean, having a chronic disease, it's normal to have things like anxiety and depression. It's, it's not pathologic in any way, but there are different ways of, of attending to that. And it's not always the best way to simply give a medication that's meant for depression. First of all, depression, uh, the antidepressants take weeks to work. So um, you oftentimes need something that would work more quickly for the patient. And, and a lot of times the real issue for the existential suffering is fatigue and sleep. 
uh, we really underrate how important sleep is, even in a patient who may well be on, you know, the terminal part of their trajectory with a chronic disease. But if you can alter their sleep to a more normal kind of pattern, it's it's amazing how pain reduces um, with that. Uh, appetite gets better. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something we we ignore in our modern society that sleep is absolutely critical to normal functioning, even in patients who are very sick with other things. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Goldman. I really appreciate your time today, and I appreciate all of this great information, and I think this will help a lot of people just to kind of better understand palliative care, what it is, and the types of services that might be able to help themselves or their loved ones. So thank you. Well, glad to be of help yet. If you'd like to learn any more about today's experts, make sure to check out the description in this podcast episode. We've got links there for you to follow. Also, we'd love to hear your feedback. Fill out the submission form on our website, mercyone.org slash podcast, where you can find all of our other episodes. Until next time, live your best life. Best life.